Welcome to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive. I'm Andy. And I am Zach. And up next, we deliver, as promised, a comprehensive five-step approach to being better at running. After that, World of Running updates about 5th Ave Mile in Europe track action with records galore. Welcome back, and don't forget to ask questions because we answer them at the end of every month by going to adzrunning.com slash question. Kind of just a hard sell there. Not not really any transition. <laughs> just do it. All right. Well, shout out to John, who I overheard recommending our podcast at our kids' soccer game. All right. Thanks, Recommending John. our podcast within earshot. Yeah. That's always fun. Much appreciated, John. Always mm-hmm. enjoy the conversations as well. Well, speaking of things we enjoy... I was running recently, and, uh, well, I hadn't started running yet, but I was about to, and my watch died, like literally died before I started running, so I thought, ah, I should plug it in, but I also needed to go for my run, and so I was like, eh, who needs a watch anyway, right? Am I right? Right. So I just went and ran. I was supposed to do a steady run that day for like an hour, and I thought to myself, I know about where I might turn around on this out and back that would be probably close to the right amount of time running. Since I didn't have a watch, I never actually knew how long I ran or how fast or any of the other things that you generally know about running, except that I gave it a good effort. And then I thought to myself, isn't that really what it's all about anyway? So why do I ever run with a watch? I don't know. I don't either. (laughs) Got to think about that more. So you know how much time you're away because you could get lost in your thoughts. Uh, it's true. If I plan the route ahead of time, though, I'm going to yeah, abide by I it. I guess maybe that would be helpful. Yeah, well, that's what I used to do. You, do you recall Do you recall people pre-GPS watch oh, days? Oh, yeah, I do. You would go on this map, and you'd kind of like try to figure out a route and about how long it is in distance, and then you'd get out your Timex, you know, your old little I Timex. I still have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they never die. Those watches <laughs> last forever. There could be a nuclear holocaust right now in the same spot we are talking, and the Timex watches would survive it. But- what ends up happening is you figure out where you're going to run. You go run it. Sometimes you time it. Sometimes you don't. And you did the thing you're supposed to do. Whatever did the GPS watch add to that experience, I ask you? Hmm. The chase? Rhetorical question, Andy. Don't answer it. <laughs> well, let's get part started with the second part of our discussion about neuromuscular training. This is going to be a good one, a very good one. Last week, oh, if you didn't hear it, you might want to go back and listen to. It's not imperative to listen to this current episode, but last week we talked about why runners should all be doing neuromuscular training and what that actually means, like what that is. But we didn't really get into the specifics of how to then properly execute things that constitute neuromuscular training. And that was on purpose because we, we just didn't have enough time to do both in a single episode. So we divided it in half. Now we are going to get into the practical the how-to stuff. And I have to say, oftentimes with these types of topics, what we tend to do is try to give you some examples and ideas, and here are some ways you could go about doing some of these things. And that's good and helpful and practical. This time, we're going to be much more structured, and there's a reason for that, because we feel like this is the kind of thing that runners don't prioritize and therefore generally just don't do, especially as adults who are busy and we have lots of things going on in our lives. And yet... I think it might be the most important thing you do aside from running because it's kind of comprehensive. 
So what we've got here now is a step-by-step phased approach to developing your body neuromuscularly. Okay. If, th- if that's a correct yeah, word. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, it is a word. Step one, we want to diagnose and evaluate. So identifying flaws in mechanics, identify tight areas or weak areas of the body. So Jay DeSherry, and I should mention, we are using a couple of different sources, but especially Jay DeSherry's work for a lot of what's informing the how here. Um, We'll mention Jay DeSherry. He's the author of Running Rewired, among many other things, but that's the one in particular that I find to be the most compelling. And then Jay Johnson, we'll talk about some of his stuff, not from any one particular source. He has many sources of information that he shares, like YouTube videos, social media. He's got blogs that he's done and he's published some books. Um, And then we'll talk about Coach Hodgkinson a little bit as well. And you can certainly listen to him on our podcast back in like episode 10. I think it is. And uh, it's been been too long. Episode 10 was like four years ago. Um, And so we've got some sources and you should know about them and you should, you know, follow up. If, if you listen to this kind of stuff and you're like, oh, that sounds like the kind of stuff that I think I want to be doing more of, go right to the source. Don't just take our word for it. Although you could because our word is good. It is. But what I want to do here is uh, make sure that you know where this stuff's coming from as we're sharing it as well. So DeSherry specifically on this topic of diagnosing and evaluating things uh, has a number of tests that we should do to check for the right kinds of things or the wrong kinds of things. I need to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like an example, well, actually I'm going to give you all the examples. I mean, I've done it before, but I need to do it again. <laughs> he shares the standing test, which is basically just like when you stand, where is your foot position relative to like your torso relative to your hips, like all three of those areas basically. Um, and there's, there's like an, a literal thing that he has you do to check that and then to correct it. So that you put it in the right position And then he says, like, do that a lot, you know, just stand there in the right position a lot and then imprint it mentally so that you, you know, can do that on purpose when you're actually running. Um, So, so again, we're at the diagnosis stage. We're not actually trying to change anything yet. So the standing test is an example. He's got an alignment check with like your hips and your shins. And many authors have written about this topic that there are definitely anatomical differences between humans. And so we shouldn't all have the exact same like foot position, for instance, it shouldn't be identical because we don't have the exact same bone structure. And so this example follows that where DeSherry will talk about how the, the rotation of your hips and your shins is not always the same as everyone else. And you can check that and kind of find out what is my natural, like the state that I shouldn't be trying to correct in terms of those rotation areas. So that's a good example. Um, something that I don't think very many people ever do on purpose. Um, and then also things like hip and ankle mobility checks. You know, how well do your ankles move? Um, how mobile and flexible are they? How well does your hip move? And those types of things. So there's others, certainly. But the main three areas we're going to be talking about through our entire time, our entire time for this topic, are your torso and posture, your hips and your feet. Those are the primary three areas to address here. So check to make sure those things are mobile and not terribly weak. So other examples of this include do a lunge test, a simple lunge. If you're wobbling all over the place, that's an issue. Um, Do 
uh, a single leg standing test for balance purposes. If you cannot hold balance easily standing on one leg, that's a problem and should be addressed. And then do add layers like closing your eyes and then also add a layer where you are closing your eyes, standing on one leg, and then moving your arms like in running position slowly. All of those things kind of give you a sense of where is my level of balance and stability. Another thing you can do for diagnosis and evaluation is go to a professional like a PT. Yeah, you should do that. It's good. Um, and, and I should note, DeSherry himself is, uh, he does these things for runners all the time. He So he tells you how you can do this for yourself. But a lot of it you can see quite clearly in his descriptions. Um, most of us don't necessarily notice the thing he's describing without being, like having another perspective. A camera, a mirror, another person. Like it's, it's hard to just know that yourself by doing it. So having, you know, some expert um, perspective here is going to be valuable. So the whole point is you're trying to figure out at this stage in things, you need to know, do I have some things that are not able to do the thing they're supposed to do. So what's in, in inhibition in the things that I'm trying to do movement-wise? Um, and if you do, that's the first place to start is you need to try to correct some of that. Now, if it's a weakness, that's built into the process here. If it's an immobility, then doing some different kinds of mobilizing techniques are going to matter. We'll come back to that here shortly. Okay. Number two. Teach your body how to move. So I'm not quite convinced yet that step two and step three happen exactly in that order. I think they're happening kind of at the same time and somewhat interchangeable, and it depends on the issues as they manifest. So for example, in step one, if you diagnose a clear ankle immobility, like my ankles just don't bend enough that they're supposed to, they don't flex very well, then you should be doing some work to mobilize that before step two really is going to even be as effective. So for example, uh, but step two, as it were, is that piece in the puzzle that says, okay, now the whole principle of neuromuscular engagement, the idea of my mind controlling my muscles is that I need to be able to make my body do what it's supposed to do, the way it's supposed to do it. And if I can't, I should train it. And again, DeSherry makes the case, he's not the only one, many make the case that because we can change our motion mechanics, so neural neuroplasticity here, because we can do that, and because some things are better than other things in terms of how we move and the way we run, then we should improve them in ways that we can. So that's the A plus B equals C kind of thinking there. Now. Remember those three key areas, your posture, your torso, Andy's correcting her posture right now while we're talking about it, your hips and your feet. Those are our big three, comes direct from DeSherry. Um, and then within those three, we kind of have uh, basically the, the principle here that these are the things that are doing, um, or rather, they're the areas that are doing things either correctly or incorrectly. So like, for instance, if my hips are doing something incorrectly, it might appear in my the way my knees are doing things, like my knee tilt or collapse or something like that, um, but it's a hip issue. So that may not be true for every single possible issue you might manifest. You might have to look for something other than just your hips, feet, or posture, but for the most part, this should cover it all. Like I sat up straighter and I had to adjust my microphone. 
Similarly, <laughs> when you adjust one thing, you maybe have to adjust another. <laughs> or <laughs> that's not the same. <laughs> I mean, the, but it is kind of like the cascade effect, right? It's true. There's one thing that you have to adjust, and then there's other things that we have to attend to as well. Or, it, yeah, it's and, all connected. And one of the principles here about motion mechanics is that all of these things, or none of these things, operate in isolation. And so, like as a runner you're not doing one motion without any of the others. They're all happening. And so in order to really achieve the goal here, we have to address improvements in all areas. And we have to look for problems when they manifest in all areas. And so it's never quite so simple as I've got this sore spot here, which means I've got this weak muscle here. And if I solve that one weak muscle, I'm good. It's never quite that simple. And you'll know that when you meet with your PT and they start talking about, well, I've got this calf issue, but, you know, I have this like tight spot in my back and those are related and because it's all related. It is. So mm -hmm. do these kinds of things in a manner that assumes they're interconnected. Yeah. And with running, it's a great opportunity because we fatigue ourselves to see where our weaknesses are. And I think it's a really cool thing that we embark on this what seems to be a very simple sport mm. because we're able to dial in and get our kinetics, um, our mechanics and our neuromuscular work done. That's going to aid and benefit us, benefit us in this very functional way. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. So here's the three areas and these are the suggestions to try to then teach them how to do the thing they're supposed to do the way they're supposed to do it. So for your posture, for your torso, um, think about one of the key areas is the position of your shoulders. And so your shoulders are supposed to be slightly back and slightly down. Um, the whole like hunched up, crunched up towards your neck or the collapse forward. Those are the most common things that runners do that they shouldn't be doing with their shoulders. Um, it's very rare, although it does happen. It's very rare that a runner's shoulders are too far back. Um, it does happen though. I it does that. happen. It's just less common of an issue. But as it were, the correction would be the same anyway. So now we're talking about in order to address things like the position of your shoulders, you're doing things like you take uh, a barbell, like one of those 45 pounders, or it could be a light. It doesn't have to be one of the heavy ones, but uh, not with tons of weight, but as long as, as long as it's heavy enough to do the thing here. You put it straight above your head, lock your elbows so that your arms are straight, spread out wider than your shoulders, and then you hold it there for like 45 seconds while you walk. What is that doing? It's pushing your shoulders down. And because you're holding it straight above your head, that's pushing your shoulders back. And so by the nature of walking around, carrying this thing above your head, you are attending to the position of your shoulders. Now you have to then be deliberate about it as well. You can't just do the thing and say, oh, that solves my problem. You have to think about where are my shoulders right now and become familiar with that position. And that's one example. There are many of them, as you might guess. And we're not going to, you know, buy the book, right? <laughs> we're not going to tell you every single word in J.D. Sherry's book here um, because that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be appropriate. And because there's, there's too, too many different things you might do depending on what the issue is. Um, but we'll continue to give you some examples here and point you in the right direction. So, okay, so that's your shoulders, uh, one example. And then also you have, as far as your torso, the position of your ribs relative to your hips, which is really kind of an interesting one. Um, and that in particular is, you know, you, you don't want to be collapsed backward. So your rib cage is like behind your hips. You want it to be slightly in front of your hips, which gives you a, a slight forward tilt, by the way, which, which you see that when people are running. 
Um, if someone is like they they almost look like they're sitting back on their own hips while they're running, that's not good. Um, it's highly inefficient, and so you want to have this hip or this this rib cage position that is slightly forward. Now, for most of us, we have a really hard time deliberately changing the position of our rib cage. So this is a good example here where you just you stand up straight, kind of get a sense for, okay, where am I here? It's just standing up straight. And then you put a hand on your chest, right in the middle, like your sternum and your belly button. Okay. And then what you want to do is you want to feel if I tilt my rib cage forward slightly, push it forward slightly, and everything else stays in the exact same spot. That's the idea here. And so with your hand in the, both of those positions, you should be able to feel like my top hand is moving. My bottom hand is staying in the same spot. It might be tilting slightly when you do that, but it's not pushing forward with it. So then what you do there is you okay, all right, I find a position where my rib cage is now slightly forward, just slightly, and then I just set my hands down at my sides, turn your palms out, and that's going to help rotate your shoulders back so your shoulders are in the right spot. And then just stand there. Like let your, let your arms relax and stand there. And what you're doing is in your head you're thinking, this is how my torso needs to be while I'm running. And then you do that frequently until you don't have to think about it anymore. You can just simply make that happen. So that's, that's an example of how precise we're talking about here with these kinds of recommendations. Guess what else we're doing throughout the day? We're learning bad movement patterns. And so we have yeah. to intentionally learn good movement patterns and stacking like Zach was talking about because we often are doing very poor things with our bodies like hunching, which I'm very guilty of. Yeah, and keep in mind that for all the bad habits you create, you have to spend that much more time with the good habits. So stop stop with the bad habits. Stop that. Okay. <laughs> okay, now your hips. Um this one has to do with a couple of different areas, a couple of different aspects. And hip control is a fascinating concept because in, in principle, as a runner, your hips are the thing that navigates the rest of your functional movement, essentially. It's starting with your hips. And so that means that the, the way you move your hips side to side, the way you move your hips in terms of rotation motion, all of that is dictating how your knees and your feet are doing their job. And so your hips need to be able to direct your motion, which is like steering around. So you need to do like rotationary work here where you can deliberately rotate your hips forward, backwards, up and down um, without moving anything else, right? So we're talking about control here. And I should say control is in fact the key with this area. Um, you're teaching yourself how to move your hips independent of the rest of you. And then you're also doing the various rotationary things. And so there's like leg circles, for example. If you were ever a hurdler at any point in time, you're like, oh yeah, I can do that. That's good stuff. Now I'm not suggesting as like a mobility thing that everyone should be able to do like hurdle drills, but um, trying to use our hips and our hip rotation correctly. Okay, and then for your feet, now we're talking about things like big toe motion control, arch strength and control and um, the idea of your forefoot and your rear foot as being two independent forces. So can you rotate your forefoot without like rotating your whole entire foot, right? 
Now, your foot will follow, your heel will follow to a degree. But can you independently control your metatarsals to move back and forth? Um, and then the other one, the foot yoga one, I, I think he calls it foot yoga. Desherry has one with your toes where it's just like, all right, start with your foot flat on the ground and then lift just your big toe, okay, pushing all the other toes down. Then switch. Push your big toe straight down to the ground and lift all the other toes at the same time. Can you do that is the first question. And if you can, how difficult is it? Um, that's something that should be you should be able to do very easily. Um, and then various foot rotation things um, to help address that forefoot arch control type of thing. Okay. It's a very humbling experience. And then... And amongst those is the simple balance type of stuff. And so this is where you get into um, stand stand on one leg and do like the Superman, what are they called? The single leg deadlift, essentially, except without weight, um, where you like lean forward and everything is straight. It's, it's a yoga move as well. You're on one foot, you're leaning forward, your other leg is straight back behind you. Oh, um, yeah. So do that, right? Um, because that what that's doing is that's forcing foot control um, to stabilize you as you are moving in a very unstable way, that whole forward lean. And then add to it a layer where you're leaning forward like that and then rotate your torso back and forth. You're rotating at the hip again, um, which is double value because it's a hip rotation exercise, which is great, but it's also st foot stability stuff. So any of the single leg type of thing is great for this. And then anything that involves foot rotation and big toe manipulation, big toe um, coordination is good. We had Phil Wharton on the show a couple times. And I remember Phil suggesting that if you are sitting for long periods, if you're at a desk, if you're in a meeting, that doing some of the foot stuff might be possible depending on your footwear, I suppose. Uh, and also the engagement of your core and your chest sitting up in that way. And uh, you might not be able to continuously do it for the entire meeting, but beginning that as uh, some sort of habit that you have to do it for periods of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that, so that's a summary or to summarize, that's step two. And we're talking about teaching your body how to move in the right ways, your posture, your torso, your hips and your feet. So you've got to wire them as DeSherry always uses the word. Um, you have to wire them properly. And if you don't, if you skip this kind of step and it's like, yeah, I'll just do the drills. I'll just, you know, correct my form while I'm running. Then more likely than not, you're correcting it incorrectly or you're doing the drills or exercises incorrectly such that you're reinforcing bad habits again. And you're going to make it even harder to improve your motion mechanics. So this stuff, independent of running as isolated exercises is essential. And that's why we have it in this point in the process. You got to do this before you do too much of the other things. And as I mentioned before, step two and three are sometimes interchangeable. I think where the line is drawn here is if you have mobility problems in your foot, ankle, hips, back, things like that, you really should spend some time addressing those before you try to do some of the neuromuscular training that we were just describing. Um, because immobility can often inhibit those things and make them harder, if not impossible to do properly. Mm. So if you have diagnosed some of those things, we certainly have plenty of examples of <laughs> different kinds of mobility work you can do. The one reminder that we always have to give is that um, there are different kinds of immobility. 
And that originally, the first place that I saw that was in Jay DeSherry's work, and I've been encountering it all over the place since then in various forms and fashions. Because what it amounts to is that if I have, for instance, myofascial uh, binding, I can't remember what the term is. There's a term for that. Um, that release techniques are the most effective for mobilizing in that kind of situation. But if I have like joint inhibition, um, then like manual manipulation, you know, like get a finger into there and move the stuff that's stuck, um, that's going to be the most effective. So it, de it depends on the nature of the immobility. But the key piece here is things need to be able to move smoothly, our muscles and tendons and such. So do that. Yeah, if you go to a PT, they uh, sometimes they have methods to help you with this as well. And it can actually help you with your proprioception because there's near muscular facilitation that they can do. So they'll tell you to contract and relax muscles. They'll do some, perhaps, what is it called? Um, where they help you through the range of motion. Where the, they help the, you? AIS. Like assist, AIS. Oh, yeah, that's one. Yeah. So there's a lot yeah. of different methods that they can do to help you with this. It's also neuromuscular. Yeah. And like your mobility stuff should reinforce some of the things we're describing here. So that's where we like the active isolated flexibility because that's an agonist antagonist pairing approach. And so what that means then is you're taking whatever the muscle is you're trying to relax or lengthen, then you have some kind of opposing muscle that contracts and tightens. And so if you can isolate that, deliberately not just you know you can reach and touch your toes but you can pull your leg up when you're laying on your back and the contracting muscle is helping move the leg into the stretch um, all the better that's a proprioceptive exercise which is going to reinforce this which is good another motion. benefit but it also helps you do your mobility more safely because mm. it won't allow for you to go too far if you're going to be contracting the muscle most likely definitely helps yeah mm -hmm. Okay, so that being the case, the strengthening side of this step three is now where this is the part that, so the stuff we said before is stuff that is potentially novel to many. Many runners just don't ever try to do things quite like those things. Um, but the strengthening side is something that people do, but we just seem to not do it consistently enough or wisely enough in terms of what we're doing and how we're spending our time. So let's talk about this a moment. First, the reason we do step two first is because it is very easy to do strengthening exercises in the wrong way. And you'll see this all the time. You go to your PT and it's like, I've got this problem and I've got this issue with my hip or my glute and I've been doing these strengthening exercises and the PT does a strength test and it's like, yeah, your glute's really strong, but it's doing everything wrong. And so your really strong glute is doing nothing for you. <laughs> and so that, that happens a lot. And I say that because we personally have been to our PT many times over the years, and he has said those exact words to us. And many others anecdotally can reinforce that. So what it amounts to then is you wire it well so that things are moving in the way that they should. It, the key here is that you are deliberately moving them. Like it's, I know how I'm moving, and then I'm doing it on purpose. And then when you do these strengthening exercises that reinforce the right kinds of functional movement, then it's achieving that goal exponentially greater because you're not only strengthening something, but you're reinforcing the good motion. 
It's so interesting because after I had my hip surgeries, I had to go back to the ba- basics and they have you just contract, isolate and contract different muscles. And then from there, you're like, okay, now you're contracting this muscle and then you're lifting. And I really thought it was helpful for me to break it down, like not try to do too complicated of things. And that helped me then do it more correctly. So I think a lot of times we like to just go to where we see the best things happening or what we think is going to be the mm-hmm. most, I don't know, the, the the most bang for our buck, like as far as the exercise goes. But we have to be able to do each piece of it correctly in order to combine things. Or we take the glamour approach, which is like, what's the thing that's the coolest exercise or the hardest exercise I lump those into the same exact perspective. Ultimately, it's like I'm doing the thing for the sake of how it seems as opposed to what it does. Now, here's the what it does stuff that we need to be addressing. So this goes back to the big three we were talking about earlier, your posture strength. You need to have strengthening within that. So remember that shoulder mechanic, right? The back and down. Now, if you can move that and hold that positionally well, that's great, but if you're not familiar with doing that, you're going to fatigue really fast because that's something that, as you're running, is just going to tire easily. And so you got to do some strengthening work for that, the shoulders, the thoracic region in your spine. And some of it's going to include some rotationary elements. Some of it's going to include some pulling elements. And so that uh, depending on where the stress and the strain is, you need all of that. Like rowing? In fact, rowing is is potentially now. I wouldn't necessarily say that all runners should be spending an hour on the (laughs) rowing machine to achieve that end, but that's an example of the kind of motion. Um, And even something as simple like push-ups. So push-ups is is two things at once um, for a runner. Uh, One, it's a it's a trunk stability exercise because you are trying to keep your trunk in a very specific position while you're doing the entire push-up. And then the other side of this is it's also a great way to put yourself in a very difficult because you're focusing on the wrong kind of thing. You know, you're pushing right off the ground. And so you're just trying to like get get yourself off the ground. But what you should be doing while you're making that pushing motion is thinking about the position of your shoulders the mm-hmm. entire time. And so the key with a push up and by the way, um, Jay Desherry actually recommends when you do push-ups for runners, especially as we're talking about this, is do them so your thumbs are pointing up, not your fingers. So you rotate your hands a bit. Why do you do that? Because it's actually going to cause a rotation in your shoulders that puts them in positionally where you want them to be when you're running. So nice tip. Yes, good push-up tip for you. Um, even something like push-ups, though, is what what that's going to do is while you're doing the push-up, you're thinking about those things you already reinforced in how your back and shoulders should be. And I, I mentioned this earlier, you should be doing that with every exercise where, what is the thing I'm supposed to be exercising and how should it be while I'm doing that? Okay. So there's your back and your shoulders, right? Those are some examples. Um, now the hip side of it, you've got a number of different things going on here. You have certainly, um, like hip control, which is partly rotation and some of those kinds of elements, and also partly like stability. Um, And so you can think about things like um, hip extensions. There's many different ways to do different types of hip extensions, but those are stabilizing, potentially control elements, but there's also some rotationary things you would do in here. So like an example being um, doing a single leg uh, band rotation. 
So you put tie a band to something, stand on one leg, and then rotate toward the place it's tied to, and then rotate away from it. And everything is still except for the twisting motion. Um, it's very hard to do. It is very difficult to do. <laughs> it's, I mean, that also, as you might guess, is helping your feet because it's a balance thing. But um, So that's an example. But then there's also, so that's one aspect of the hips, the stability and rotationary control. But then also you have the driving force. And so that's more of like the uh, propelling and thrusting motions in various capacities. Um, and so, and that might include something like squats even, or like step-ups, uh, those driving motions. And we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk more about that in a moment too. But there, there's a number of ways to achieve that. Bridges, everyone's familiar with bridges, right? Uh, but bridges with some other layers of like weighted bridges or single leg bridges. But get it right first. Do the bridge yeah. correctly first before you add weight. Yes. And it goes to the whole, back to the whole thing. You need, your hips need to be positionally in the right spot. So remember where your rib cage is supposed to be, right? Lean slightly forward where your where your torso tilt is. You want to be doing these exercises in that position the entire time. So I'm holding that correct torso posture, which puts my hips in the right kind of tilt. So there's your hips as, as an example. Uh, and then how about feet? We've been talking a lot about that. So your, your foot control and stability side of things includes all of what we were referencing earlier, balance type of stuff, stand on one leg, doing some various kinds of uh, asymmetrical, uneven um, types of things. And so you're lifting weight with one side, you're twisting, rotationary, all that type of stuff while doing one foot, single leg types of things. Okay. And, and many other foot exercises that include any of the above. Um, a lot of times that when you do some of these other things, it's also a foot exercise. Now, if those are the key areas, then consider the force mechanics as well. And this is another thing that I felt was very insightful within DeSherry's work was um, we're not just talking about like vertical force. We're also talking about horizontal force. And so there's a lot of like um, front to back motion that you should be doing in exercises. That includes things like... Um, like deadlift, where you're just bending at the waist. And that includes some of those other exercises we mentioned with the, the hip motions that are um, like a driving motion as opposed to a rotationary. So that can be horizontal forces. And then also vertical forces, lots of things like squats and single leg squats and squats with a chair behind you and one foot, like runner Oof, squats. I'm exhausted hearing you talk all right, about this. Right, right. <laughs> so... What, are, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a workout regimen here in terms of strengthening that addresses all of these key areas. And if it's doing that and we're approaching them with that sense of I'm in the correct position and posture while I'm doing it, I'm moving things in the correct way while I'm doing it, then we are going to be able to be successful. So if, if someone's listening to this and they're like, wow, Zach, that's just a lot. Like, where do I start? How do I, how do I do this? What would you say to them? Because it does sound overwhelming, all the things that you're listing off. Yeah, well, as, as it were, Jay DeSherry has a number of his own exercise routines on YouTube for free. <laughs> you can just go search them up. Um, that's not a bad place to start. Um, but keep in mind, we're talking about a comprehensive approach here that we think is going to be much more effective than just pulling an exercise routine. So if you do nothing else, start with trying to figure out how can I control my body deliberately? You know, do the proprioceptive work. 
first. And then some of the strengthening stuff, there's a lot of great routines out there that don't come just from some of the sources we've mentioned. There's plenty of other ones too. But it, but doing them within under that umbrella of, I know how I'm supposed to be positionally and I can control my movements deliberately. That's what's going to make those things effective. Now, this brings us to step four, which I think is um, a step that we have spent the most amount of time on already in general as we're talking with runners. Uh, and this is the part of what are the kinds of things you can do to then just reinforce the motion mechanics in uh, in some kind of regular sense. And these are the, the precision drills and exercises, the pre-run routines, some of that type of stuff, the activation drills. We talk all the time about these kinds of things. In fact, we have a pre-run routine. We mentioned it last week again. You can go to adzrunning.com slash free and it's still available to you. Um, and just so you know, when you do that, you don't get the routine instantly sent to you. We periodically send it. It's usually about once a week. Um, so if you didn't see it, when you filled out the form, wait a few days and then you'll probably get it. So as it were, those are great things. Um, the, the precision exercises and drills are the thing that now, as I said earlier, when I do them in the correct way, when I'm moving things properly, when I'm positionally correct, then they're going to be very effective in reinforcing those motion mechanics now no longer in isolation like some of the exercises previously but now in functional movement experiences this is kind of a cool side effect of doing drills is that you are going through in some exaggerated movements and we are able to become more intuitive because we can feel different parts of our bodies that are off more readily than if we are doing our jogs without doing drills because we can get really used to running restricted we could get really used to running with comp compensation so the drills help draw out some of the things that we need to be working on or be mobilizing that we aren't like i feel this really tight spot like i need to pay attention to that where we might have not noticed that uh, right away in our run yeah so step four is easy. This is this is the kind of stuff you should be doing. Um, most people will say, uh, Jay Johnson and Jay DeSherry both say at least two times a week. We say you should probably do it every day. Coach Hodgkinson says you should probably do it every day. Not that two times a week is bad, like too little, but more is probably better. <laughs> every day before you run. And so here's the here's the, I guess the example, especially if you're doing if you're newer to this type of thing and you haven't spent a lot of time doing this already you're still trying to reinforce that wiring that's not yet second nature or what we call reflexive um autonomic and so if it's not then doing this more often is going to help with that but also these things have a secondary consequence which is they help with those things they also just help you feel better when you run and that's why we think you know you should do it every day because you're going to feel better and run better anyway so what specifically should you do? Go check out the routine if you want the example because that's that's a great example. There's plenty of others out there, but um, trying to find the types of motions that help activate and exaggerate the types of things that you should be doing as you're running. Okay, so that's step four. Make it reflexive by doing those things regularly and often. Mm -hmm. Now, step five is just a question of, well, how do I just make sure that I maintain the good work that I've done in day-to-day -day training? And there are some good examples of things to consider. 
Yeah. So your shoulder position, your torso position, and your lean, your leg motion with your hips, good foot control. So these are all things that you've developed as we talked about firstly when we were talking about being aware and finding those positions, finding your weaknesses by doing those tests. This is going to benefit you when you come into these movement checks. These are things that you have done like routinely. while like while you're running. Right. But these are things you've done routinely so you know what it feels like as yeah. you're running so you can do these movement checks. And then lots of near muscular work that you can do, stimulus that you can include in your training that's going to help you near muscularly uh, run better, run more efficiently. Things like strides, any fast running is going to help your mechanics. Jay Johnson says that runners should be doing short, fast striding every single easy run. We think that's I, probably too much. For, I did in high school. For most of our people, but at the same time, yes. Now, if you're doing it properly, then you're not talking about like all-out sprints and lots of them. You're talking about five, maybe eight short, quick stride outs in the middle section of your easy run. Well, we this is brings me to another thought because there are different ways to do strides. How we suggest that people do strides is within your run because it can help you throughout your run with your mechanics. Well, we we meaning Jay Johnson and we okay. adopted that from him. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's how we recommend doing them in addition to Jay Johnson. We listen to him on that. But we think it makes sense because if you want to feel better your whole run, if you want to have good mechanics your whole run, let's spread them out. And also it helps you not overdo it because you can give yourself plenty of time and space in between your strides. Yeah, and uh, Andy loves to talk about Mike Swinger's uh, physical drills. therapist, Mike Swinger's zombie drills. That's a similar kind of example than less stress, but uh, achieves the same end um, of a kind of neuromuscular re-stimulus. It, it helps you put your body in the right position. And for someone like me that has had a lot of interesting things with the hips and injuries and things, it's helpful to continually remind myself what position my body should be in. And lastly, um, well, I guess lastly, in conjunction with each other, uh, workouts like fartlek workouts are exceptional when you're in the midst of certain types of training. A fartlek workout is the goal being variability. So you're crossing many different uh, neuromuscular areas and short and fast, longer and harder, uh, uphill, downhill, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then along with that, things like hill workouts, everyone under the sun has talked about hill workouts since the dawn of time. For runners and what it, what they're amounting to here is in principle the hill provides a different kind of neuromuscular stimulus and a different kind of musculoskeletal um, adaptation and so you're increasing muscle recruitment you're changing the muscles that are having to be recruited and therefore expanding that muscle recruitment so those types of things are all going to help reinforce and maintain the good work you've done to develop yourself neuromuscularly. Mm -hmm. We missing anything, Andy? We're not missing anything, I don't think. I mean, there's a few things that people say can help you uh, recruit, you know, things like ASTEM and compression, things of that nature. But those are all going to be secondary. Well, maybe like way down the line. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know a number to give it to all the rest of this training. Well, they don't take the place of any of this kind no, of stuff. No, they don't take the place. It's just like an aid, yeah. potentially, um, with varying degrees of accurate research. Uh, okay, so here's your quick summary. Five steps to train yourself neuromuscularly so that you are a better runner. <laughs> First, diagnose your immobilities and weaknesses. Figure that out. 
Second, teach your body how to move in those three key areas, your posture, shoulders, your hips, and your feet. Third, then, is do the mobility and strengthening work. Now that you know how to move your body, strengthen it within that understanding and make sure everything's mobilized so that it moves well and smoothly. And then step four, now that you are strengthening it and so you can certainly do the things well, make it reflexive if it's not already by doing things like precision drill work. Do that all year round. Do it regularly, if not every day. That's good. Step five then, do some good work in your training to help maintain and reinforce that stuff. Check in on yourself while you're running. Do some of those posture checks, some of those position foot strike checks, things like that. And then do some workouts that help reinforce neuromuscular diversity. And that includes striding, that includes fartlicks, hills, all the above. Mm-hmm. And I do want to remind you, it sounds overwhelming, all the things that you can do, but just thinking about the awareness of your body and having your body in the right position in everyday life, to think about it as you're sitting, uh, to think about it as you're standing, all of these things are going to help you become a better runner. Now let's get on to the world of running. We love to kick things off in the world of running with some A to Z runner shout outs. Last Monday, Chris ran the Mackinac Bridge Race. Very cool race. Mary, a 5K. She's first overall. Nolan, right now, is in the midst of a 100-mile stage race. Hope it's going well. (laughs) Yeah. And Jared was in the Reeds Lake Sprint Try. And Kate ran the 911 Memorial 5K. Great work, everybody. Mm -hmm. Very exciting stuff. Now, first up on our agenda here is the fifth Ave mile. One of the most famous road miles on the planet. It is the largest road mile in the world this year. Ah, Mm -hmm. good. Well attended, even though there were canceled heats because of the weather. It was raining. raining? I guess there Mm. could have been some other things going on with that rain, maybe some stormage, but not sure about that. Stormage? (laughs) We're moving on past that one. All right. Well. This is, is an exciting piece of news to share, although, you know, we're not from Scotland. It's still cool. The third consecutive year that athletes from Scotland won the men's and women's New Wait, Balance. Wait, both? Men's and women's? Fifth Avenue Mile. Ah, the Scottish are just killing us. <laughs> it was very cool uh, to, to see the athletes that came out with having such a long season. I know we are ending now in Eugene, but it's still so long. It is a long season. athletes are continually showing up in a big way. Speaking of which, the winner. The man himself. The man himself, Josh Kerr, won his first Fifth Avenue Mile after his big win at the World Championships. How much do you think they had to pay him to show up there? Being the, you know, the world champion in the 1500. I don't I know. Just would, I would love to know. All, all these non-disclosures. Like no way. No way he was already committed. Okay, He's never done it before. No, no. This was this was a result of winning okay. that championship. Amon Kemboy won the halfway bonus of $1,000, which they do here at the Fifth Ooh. Avenue Mile. So this is how they do it. Whoever is leading halfway gets a $1,000 bonus. If they finish the race, They right? have to finish the race, yeah. but still. But they don't have to finish well. <laughs> they just have to get it back across the like line. I kind of like this idea because it's just maybe different strategy than paying a rabbit yeah you could say that but what ends up happening is what these people always do is they just sit in the pack until right about halfway and then they kick 
as if it's the end of the race. Yeah. Get the halfway bonus and then just flatline the rest of the run. Well, I don't know if they. I don't know if they flatline. Flat well, Amon Kemboy didn't show up anywhere big uh, in the rest of the results. So he didn't make top ten. So. Yeah. But it's still that's it's fun. It's cool. Now the other thing about the fifth half mile is it's blisteringly fast, like, un, uh, unjustifiably fast. So it's always kind of exciting to see like people yeah. just go flying down the road for it's this a run. straight line. This year though there was some rain. Yeah, but it didn't seem to slow him down. Josh Kerr won this race in three forty seven point nine. Wow. It's fast. He attributes his success in this race to his racing shoes from Brooks because they had more grip on them. Than some of the other people? Uh-huh. Yeah, except Brooks' shoes in the lab have specifically tested poorly. Huh. So, <laughs> for I don't know. No, for energy return. I, well, that's true, but maybe in this instance, the... Grip I can't imagine the grip's all that different from the other Slippery. Shoes. I don't know. I find uh, super shoes to be very slippery. So that's I true. think it's smart for any company to try to make good on that and yeah, get okay. some traction right. going. Well, Josh Kerr won by a handy two seconds. So whatever his magic this year, it's continued. Although he announced that he is not doing the Diamond League final next week in Eugene. Wah, wah. Despite being in the States already. But probably he here, so. he, does he? Um, He's I can't part remember. of Brooks Beast, isn't that? Oh, in the did, US? they're based out of Seattle, but those I don't know if they train all in the same location. Okay. But anyway, um, so yes, he, that that would actually make it even more interesting if he's literally training in Seattle because you know the Diamond League Championships is in Eugene, Oregon, just down the road there. So as it goes, he has said the reason he's not is because he's just kind of burnt out from all the activity. Yeah. Being the world champion and all, apparently there's some demand. He's like, I've never experienced this kind of demand, which makes sense. He's doing lots of interviews and things, and we don't know what his contracts entail. You know, in other countries, they revere their runners, and so, like, their runners, like, get invited to stuff, and that's really cool. I wish they'd do that in the U.S., but... <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> no, I know that they do some, but... I, no, yeah, they don't. <laughs> Not culturally. Any other standout performances? Yeah, I mean, just the fact that 10 people ran under 353 is, uh, you know, not saying anything shabby. The top six were under 351, 350 point something or faster. That's just, that's amazing. Vincent Ciotti, first American across the line. Notable because he's been really running the road scene quite okay. well. His road mile record this year is like top four for every single one that he's done. And he was fourth in this event. And he was fourth, yep. Women's results, we kind of gave away that it was a Brit who won. This time, Gemma Riki, not Laura Muir. Yeah. <laughs> Laura Muir, we'll talk about her here in a bit. But Riki also won in 2021. So she's oh, coming Oh, this back. is her second yeah, this victory. Is her back, okay, second victory. Kayla Edwards won the halfway bonus of $1,000. Does not usually run She's mile not races. a miler. She is not a miler at all. And when asked, she just said, like, hey, I wasn't ready to run the distance. She was there for, for the race, halfway bonus. But it's it sounded like a fun Does Kayla Edwards live in the area? I don't know. I bet she does. I'm trying to remember I which group fun. she trains I with. I think it's a really fun idea to do it this. That, that's something. It kind of pulls things along, gives a little extra energy midway. Yeah. So speaking of fast, Gemma Riki won the race in 419. A very solid time anywhere in a mile, but uh, a good half a second ahead of second place as well. Mm-hmm. 
putting the time on. Nikki Hiltz was first from the USA in a time of 4.20, and Hiltz was disappointed. Not to make top three, but still a great performance. 4.20 is a fast time. Yeah, and what you're going to do when, you know, everyone's running so fast So fast. This is exciting news. Ellie Pereer St. Pierre. Nope, just St. Pierre Oh, St. Pierre. She dropped the She dropped career. the career. This is her first race since baby. Ah, In first fact, race. Ba- and she finished seventh. She ran 423. That's great. Wow. This race last year is when she announced that she was pregnant. Oh. And so this is kind of a cool full circle type Poetic. of situation coming back and running this event as her opener. And we're going to talk about Nozomi Tanaka of Japan here shortly, but uh, she finished eighth in the race in 4.23 a few days after running a 5,000 in Brussels. So a little bit of travel in between there. Yeah, and you know, just travel. Hop, aqua- hop across the pond and then go run another fast race. I imagine she's on her way to Eugene for the sure. Diamond League finals. I would and so that this too. is just kind of a stop along the way. Mm-hmm. I guess it makes sense. World record... First stop, because there are two that we have in this World of Running update, in Zagreb. Is that how you'd say that? I don't Zagreb? know how to say it. I don't know where it is. <laughs> where is this? It's a. It's in the Boris Hanzokovic Memorial Race. It's a World Athletics Continental Tour gold meeting, so it's going to have top-tier talent. The World 3,000-meter steeplechase record holder, Beatrice Chipkowicz, now has the World 2,000 steeplechase best. Is it's not, a, it's not an official record because it's not an event recognized by World Athletics as like one of the official events. But nonetheless, she ran it faster than anyone else has before. If there so. are Guinness World Records, this is a record. Like, this is legit. <laughs> it was at a legit meet, a legit time. Yeah, she I dropped five seconds off the previous time as well. So That's big. Her time yeah. was 547.42. The previous wow. record was 552.80, and that yeah. was held by Gessa Felicitas Kraus, and Kraus set that in 2019. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Winnie Jamute of Kenya almost ran the time as well. Could have almost broken that the previous time. Record? Yeah, the yeah. previous record of 552.92, second in the race. And third place woman ran a national record for Sylvania. Oh. Maruza Mismasa. Oh, sorry. Mismas Zerimusek. And she ran a time of 553.38. So it just goes to show you, there's Beatrice Chepkowicz winning by five seconds again. She is just something else in the steeplechase. A force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. Now on to the Brussels Diamond League. So many good races that happened (laughs) this week. Our last installment for the episode here, and yet it was the first one to happen of the three that we've shared so far. So the Brussels Diamond League is the last stop before the Diamond League Championships, which is in Eugene. And in this one in particular, it was not quite as like star-studded as some of the others. Almost like everyone's kind of taking a breather before the Diamond League final. But that didn't stop the likes of Jacob Ingebrigtsen from doing the thing that he likes to do. Which is break records break and run fast. world past. records and run <laughs> fast. So in this in particular was then a unique event, an uncommon one here, the 2,000-meter run. So you're familiar with the 1,500 because that's what this, these people generally do the most. Um, and the mile. So the 2,000 is, is five laps on a track, which makes it one of those very strange races 
because milers do it and they feel like they're running a mile, but then suddenly they're out of energy and they've got another lap to go or something close to that. Um, it's one of those where you see a lot of people running very fast until the last couple hundred meters. And then it's really hard to hold on. So Ingebrigtsen tells them, set the lights, set the pacers at world record pace. I'm going to break it. That, by the way, is a world record held by the legendary Hicham El Garouche. So not only did he break it, but he dragged the rest of the field behind him into record-setting performances, nearly every one of them. It was an incredible race. So, yes, previous record was 444.79, set in 1999, so 24 years later, almost to the day. And Jacob Ingebrigtsen, he wasn't even born yet, right? Uh, well, he certainly isn't 24 years yeah, old. Yeah, so, so he wasn't even born no. yet. <laughs> this was um, set. He broke it by a second and a half, running 443. And I have to tell you, it didn't look like he had it until the last 200. And then it was, he just trounced it. it. It was mm-hmm. amazing. So there you go. Um, Ingebrigtsen has won, has lost one race this year. And, of course, it's the one that counts, the world championship. Um, but of the races that he has run, he's set two world records in them. So you got to hand it to the guy. He can rally, at least. Well, there were many more incredible finishes in this race. Seven records. Seven Second, records. Seven of 11 finishers. Set some kind <laughs> of record. Yeah. So here you go. Let's go down with it. Second place was Renard Kip Career Chariot of Kenya, setting a new Kenyan national record. And folks, I got to tell you, it's not very often that you hear people say something like a new Kenyan national record because those records are very difficult to beat. Mm-hmm. And he did it. And he's a young guy, too. He's how old is he? 18? I don't know how old he is. No, he's a teenager. OK, so cool. So Chariot just uh, showing that, you know, he's there's a good chance he's kind of the next future miler, mm-hmm. uh, certainly out of Kenya. And Stewie s- McSwain. Sorry, I cut you off. Take it. Stuart McSwain of Australia ran a new Oceania area record he's got a few of those mm-hmm. but now he's got the 2000 to add to his list Niels Laros of Netherlands the young guy he also is a teenager still I believe he is 18 years old still you like S- to talk about Laros yes because I think that he is going to be the next one okay. to own the event um, Laros can finish like no man's business well he just ran another new Netherlands national mm-hmm. record which also would have been a European record had not Ingebrigtsen also he's European so right. there's that. Mario Garcia claimed a new Spanish national record. Right on. Charles Filibert to the I always <laughs> I always stumble over his name. Um, all right, so Charles of Canada, <laughs> a new North American record. And we saw that and we were like, ah, this is one that Nagush should have been in because yeah. it would have been cool to see him battle it out for that North American record too. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there's a new North American and Canadian record. Mm-hmm. And then Belgian Ruben Verheiden. Ran a new national record for, of course, Belgium, because he's Belgian. Yes. So <laughs> they do. So there you go. Seven. Seven. Seven records. Unbelievable. Absolutely so the 2000 meter was just reset, mm-hmm. just about globally. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. But that wasn't the only fast race of the day. No. Women's 1500 meter run. Laura Mir, she's on. The best, her peak right now, it seems, because last week she won an 800 in 157, if you'll remember. And this week she won the Diamond League 1500 in a time of 355.34, which is the fourth fastest time in her career. And her career has been long. And this was no uh, this was no shrug of a field either. 
Um, so she did that, but nine women ran under four minutes in this one race. Incredible. It yeah. is something. So of those nine, many uh, were contending um, some big races throughout this year. We've been talking about Ireland's Kiara McGeehan, who holds the Irish record. Well, she just bested it yet again mm-hmm. for a new Irish record, 355 and change. And then behind her, we've got the likes of Addie Wiley as well, 19 years old. And you've heard us talk about her. She runs for that like small school division. NAIA, <laughs> the Huntington. NAIA. Mm-hmm. I'm intentionally um, giving NAIA a bad rap. Oh, uh, no, 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 not NAIA. a bad rap. I'm just suggesting that it's uncommon it is that uncommon. someone out of the NAIA runs this fast. Well, she ran what would have been a collegiate NCAA record except she's not part of the NCAA, so she doesn't get that record. But she does get the collegiate record. But she did run the fastest time ever run by a collegian. That's besting the time set by Jenny Simpson, then Jenny Berenger, running for Colorado. And notably, Jenny Simpson was 22 years old at the time of setting the record, and Addie Wiley's still 19. Wow. Absolutely incredible. Not surprising after she ran a 157 in the no. 800 as well. So clearly she's got it. She does. Oh, yeah. What time did she run? <laughs> she just keeps saying. 359.17. Right on. Yeah. And, you know, some of these names in the list I kind of thought was interesting. So Addie Wiley, then Jen- Jenny Simpson, Jessica Hall. This is on the collegian On the collegiate list, list. Not on this race. yeah. yeah. Uh, Sophia O'Sullivan and Sinclair Johnson. So names Those that you top, recognize. Top collegian. 1500 meter times Mm -hmm. yeah names you recognize well two of those ran those times this year including the world championships when sophie o'sullivan ran her best time so lots of fast running in that race as well and then the last one to note here is in the women's 5000 it was not as crazy fast as it's been you know we've had world records in that event this year multiple near world records in it as well um lots of like national records too. yes right well as it were uh the national records aren't over yet so the race was not quite as fast ultimately up front lillian rangaruk and aisa medina specifically of ethiopian uh, of kenya and ethiopia respectively um were kind of just battling it out in the late stages but then nozomi tanaka of japan we mentioned her earlier because she ran the fifth half mile a few days after this race um she was like just kind of moving up and moving up in the last few laps. And suddenly it's like, oh, and now she's actually a factor in this race. She's a contender. And with a lap to go, she starts trying to pass, uh, trying to move around Lillian Rangaruk as well. And it's it's like, where did she come from? It was an amazing last couple of laps. Mm-hmm. So she makes up all that ground. She ends up not besting them in the final kick, but in third place claiming a new Japanese national record. Fourteen twenty nine point one eight. Very fast running. Awesome running. Impressive stuff out of Brussels. And we've got now, the next time you hear from us, the opportunity to share with you the Diamond League Finals, which wraps up the track season for the year as well. Just in time for us to start talking about cross country a little bit more. And too. marathons coming up. Yeah. Big time marathons. But there's cross country. There's a lot of things to <laughs> talk about. <laughs> That's about it for now, but we're excited to come back again here soon. And just a quick reminder, if you missed last week's episode, it goes hand in glove with this week's. And so make sure that you catch both of them 
so you have a complete understanding of neuromuscular training. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.